series right now called Learning God's Presence. Because one of the biggest things, a, a kind of seismic shift in the life of our church over the last four years is moving from ideas about Jesus and believing these truths that are held in the gospel, right? That God loves the world and that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose so that we could have new life in him, that those ideas are not intended by God to just remain as ideas until we die and go to heaven. But that those ideas are actually reality for us to live into here and now. And over these four years, it started to become more tangible to us. We started to taste more and more of it. That the, the kingdom of God is at hand, and we need to learn how to take hold of it. And so, in this series, we set a foundation. The first three weeks, we were just setting a foundation, because a lot of times, we start off on the wrong foot with God, because we have the wrong foundation. Alright? So the first week, we started and we said... Um, we live in a God-drenched world. When Jesus came and said the kingdom of God is at hand or near, he was saying, God's here in a way that he was not before I came around as the Son of God. We tend to see a God-deserted world all around us. And Jesus said we live in a God-drenched world. Second part of our foundation, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus. We said he is the smartest man who's ever lived. The smartest man who ever lived. That doesn't mean that when in his earthly life he had all the information that could be had, but it means that he had all the necessary information to teach us and communicate to us about a life of flourishing with God as people. Right? He's worthy not only of hearing and believing, but of embracing and obeying. Last week, we turned the tables towards us. And we said that scripture actually opens our eyes to this foundational reality of the Christian life that says God's presence takes practice. It does not come naturally for you and me to just flourish in a kind of spirituality. No matter how much the world would say, just follow your intrinsic desires and impulses and surely you will find God. That was not what Jesus said. It's not the testimony of scripture. That what we do with our bodies is actually an opportunity to shape our souls. So that as we would embrace what church history has called liturgy, or tangible practices that express our convictions, our beliefs, we would come to experience and believe them more deeply. Right? Our bodies are important in our spirituality and in making God more real to us on a daily basis. Right? All of those three things were to set a foundation for what we're going to start talking about today and the following week. We as a church are intentional about how we do our gatherings, about how we structure the life of our church, and you could call it a kind of liturgy, purposeful expression of our convictions. We've clarified that over the last years, and we've come to a point where we want to actually tell you, pull the curtain back to say, this is what we're doing, and this is something that you can do in your daily life to learn God's presence too, to take ideas and faith and make them real and experience in your life, okay? Today's week one. There are going to be five simple movements over the coming weeks that we get to live out in our walk with God, and today is the very anchor of it. Today is the very anchor of it. We simply 
he he faced God. Faced God. The whole title for today. First movement in our liturgy of learning the with God life is that we need to face God. So you open up in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 6. We're going to be in verses 22 and 23. And if you do not have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have them in English and Spanish right here on this communion table over here, and then another one over there. We would love to give you one if you don't have it. Um, otherwise, you can pull out the scriptures. I'm going to read. our bodies to help our, our souls to understand the importance and significance of hearing God's word, revering God's word. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 22-23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is your darkness? Jesus, we thank you that you came not just as a savior to make right and pay for our sins, but to actually teach us, to immerse us in the very light of our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the original community in the Godhead. And we yearn to live our day-by-day lives in your presence, living life to the full, making a difference in our city. So we want to hear your word right now, and we want to we want to take it seriously. Would you make it real to us? Holy Spirit, would you give guidance to everyone in the hearing of my voice and to my own soul? That we would not just hear your word, Jesus, but we would hear seeking to obey. Transform us. Speak to us. Reveal uh, the, the glory of Jesus to us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, this teaching of Jesus finds its point in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And... In Matthew 6, um, Jesus is two chapters into the Sermon on the Mount, and he is teaching after he's brought up this what are called the Beatitudes. Now he's trying to teach us kind of how we can know him and what we ought to do about it. Um, So confused here. You're probably almost very confused. Hopefully, you can feel in those 15 seconds how weird it is when we're present and not present. It pains me. I'm a little shaky right there, like trying to simply be distracted without doing this. But what we do with our eyes 
says a lot. Um, probably heard it said that 75, maybe 90% of communication is nonverbal, right? A lot of that has to do with what you're doing in your mind. Last two years, I'm looking at you, and for most of you, all I see are your eyes. Try and read it. There's a lot that we can tell, right? So, like, massive experiments of eye communication. But beyond that, as we establish a liturgy as a church, what we need to realize is that one of the greatest dangers to your Christian life, the vitality of your faith, is to be physically or spiritually present with God, around God, without actually facing God. Familiarity with God deceives you into thinking you have intimacy with Him. And it actually can draw you away and give root to other things to get your attention even while you might feel you are in the presence of Jesus. You see how we, we can be physically near, or to put it spiritually near, or associate with Jesus, and not be making eye contact with Him. I mean, how many times, if you are a Christian, have you prayed and just felt like it, there's nothing gripping or compelling about your connection to God in that moment? Old Christians used to say, you need to pray until you're praying. What they mean is, you need to actually like wrestle the inattention in your soul and in your heart and even in your mind to the point where from internal to external, all parts of you are consistent in your engagement with God. We need to just shatter any sort of notion that we can presume upon intimacy with God because you're attending church right now. Or because you open up the scriptures every day. Or because you might pray as you're driving to work. So the very first movement in our choreography as a community of heaven on earth following Jesus needs to be getting the anchor right. And that anchor is a consistency from the bottom of us all the way to the surface of us. That we would face God. Facing God is the first step because it forces us to own what's really in us and it, it connects us into the deepest purpose of life. God will not settle for you going through motions in this life. Jesus didn't come and teach and lay down his life for sins and rise again so that we could merely associate with a certain kind of people in a certain kind of community and then die and go to be with them one. He laid down his life and rose again that we could be completely remade and live a life connected to God. The only way that that can happen, what I would invite you to, whether you're a Christian or not, is to say, what am I facing today? And is it really cultivating and making me more human in who I am and how I'm living? Think about what is most important in being human? Because some of you might might be here and, and simply asking the question, all right, this is the church, what are they about? You assume that there's kind of this buttoned up kind of uh, 
way of, of living or behaving as a Christian, and it might be surprising to you to hear that authenticity and intimacy and spiritual connection is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. But we get this intrinsically. Because the most powerful moment in yours and my life probably had to do with someone looking us in the eyes in a moment when we needed it. And saying or doing something that expressed deep value and love. That's what it means to be human. That's how we are fulfilled. It's to be connected to others in loving relationships and open in such a way that intimacy can be experienced. That we can be attached to something bigger than us. And in order to do that with God, we need to own the fact that it is very easy to be associated and familiar without thinking. That's, I think, what Jesus is calling us to today. Relational connectivity to the God that we worship. So I want to simply ask at the forefront, who or what are you facing? What impact is it having on you? On this, our fourth birthday, we're starting back at the very beginning, at a foundational level, to say, as we look ahead, what are we going to be founded in? And I want to urge us to say, we want to be facing Jesus from the bottom of our hearts, outward with our bodies too, not to the exclusion of actually doing, but certainly not without facing him from the, our hearts. Um, let's dive into this. The first point that I want I want to make for us is where you look reveals you. Where you look reveals you. I'm going to read our text again right here. Matthew 6, 22 and 23. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is darkness? So what in the world is Jesus talking about here when he calls the eye of the body, or the, the eye as the lamp of the body? It's confusing at the forefront. I've read multiple commentaries this week, multiple people trying to understand what does Jesus mean here? Is it a lamp? Which direction is the light going? What's it talking about? And I think one of the reasons this is so hard for us to understand is, is actually the main problem we're trying to address. That what we bring to Jesus is the expectation that he just speaks to spiritual realities in us and not holistic components of being human. Because you see, the assumption that Jesus is bringing to you and me is that we cannot separate who we are and the varying components of who we are. We can't say we're one way in our soul and live in a way that's contradictory to it with our body. So when Jesus speaks about the eye being the lamp of the body, I think we need to take it first at face value and say, okay, what are we doing with our eyes? And we know this to be true. I showed it in the beginning, right? Like, even though I'm here and I'm talking to you guys, I'm looking down at something, and that is communicating something way more powerful than the words that I was saying. Um, it's similar to uh, flag football with my kids. So I'm helping assistant coach, and um, 
<laughs> brutal, brutal games yesterday. <laughs> Helping to coach them, and little seven to ten year olds. You're communicating something really simple to them, and they're facing you while their eyes are looking over your shoulder. And there's a practice going on over there, or there are kids playing soccer, or there's a kid from their class, or there's a puppy dog, or a church is having a fourth birthday party, and they're, they're not with you. And so I say, hey, Charlie, pay attention. I'm listening to you. I can repeat back to you everything that you just said. <laughs> Every teacher? Well, then what did I just say? Isn't that scary? They can do it. They can repeat back exactly what I just said. The problem is the field when they go out onto the field and try to do what I just said. And so one person doesn't run across the field in the way that they're supposed to. The center doesn't snap the ball at the right time. The quarterback has no idea where they're supposed to throw the ball. They obtain the information in at least some component of their being, right? Their faculties were working enough for it to stick. But they didn't do it. They couldn't execute on the field. And we're talking like a three-second turnover. This is not like... Talking on Thursday, game day on Sunday. This was instant application and we could not do it. <laughs> the problem was not in their hearing of me, but their valuing of God. They didn't take it in such a way that it rose above any other distractions, any other priorities, any stomach hunger they might have been feeling in that moment and wondering what mom's making for dinner. And so instead, they got distracted. You see, where you look reveals what is actually going on inside of you. We know this is true. We have countless experiences where we go out to coffee with people, we're having a conversation with someone. You ever have that moment where you feel so unimportant to someone because even though you're talking with them, they clearly are more concerned with someone else in the room, with something else they may need to do. You experience inside of you that you were not of enough value for their whole being to be focused on you. You were not seen, you were not appreciated, whatever it was communicating to you. So you see, the eyes are not just for our intake of information. They communicate something to the watching world about what is going on outside of us. If we desire to learn God's presence, we need to start at step one, asking the question, what do our eyes physically reveal about whether or not we're facing God? And then we can ask the question, spiritually, the eyes of our souls, what do they reveal about what we're looking to? Just because your faith is pointing in a certain direction does not mean you are actually valuing what is in that direction. Your eyes can be looking in multiple places uh, beyond where you are facing. And in our humanness, 
in how complicated we are. One part of us can believe it's focused in one direction, while the other is focused over here. So if you, uh, if at your workplace, you are controlled and constrained, if you go to the spiritual level, you are controlled and constrained by your job review. And so you're enslaved to whatever your boss asks of you. And you allow their requests and demands and expectations to encroach upon your family. And the obligation, if you're a husband or you have kids, or to encroach upon your obligations to Jesus and worshiping him. Or you value money, and so you need to stockpile it, and you have certain expectations about saving and projection over months of time or getting to retirement. And so it prohibits your generosity to the people around you. Or in your studies, you associate with a church and even a campus ministry, but then all the rest of your life is predominantly shaped by social desires to be viewed in a certain way or connected to certain people. And so you participate in things that you're like, ah, I don't know if Jesus would really have me here. Or you bail finals week, you disappear. things, even though they might be cultural assumptions, need not be so, and might actually reveal where the faith of our soul is directed. You see this, right? It's hard for me to explain. Facing it, eye contact, but we get it intrinsically. The context that this is in, Matthew 6, 22 and 23, is immediately followed by a very helpful word from Jesus. Direct context. He says in verse 24, exactly this kind of division that we think is possible, that it is not. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Practical example. Jesus is saying, as human beings, even though we are complicated, we cannot serve two things simultaneously. One thing will be ultimate. So you and I could understand this component of what Jesus is teaching, saying, what's the ultimate thing for you? Where are your eyes, the eyes of your soul, actually directed? And how might your physical eyes reflect some of those priorities out into the world? The eye is so simple, but it's so challenging to us, okay? Um, the church right now is having a reckoning. If you're at all plugged in to social media or your friends, you're seeing friends that you, you saw following Jesus, maybe even the ones who led you to Jesus or impacted you in your discipleship and learning about following him, people in the church are leaving the church in growth. Now, it is a complicated kind of thing that I'm not trying to boil down to simplicity, but in some ways, what is happening is our feet are following where our eyes were the whole time. I mean, maybe put it this way. Um, my car has a really silly license plate. My wife hates it. She's up serving kids' ministry right now. Uh, but I came home from the DMV when we moved to California eight years ago with a license plate, pull it on out. Saying, hey, we got our license plate. It was kind of this moment, right? We're Californians now. And she looks at it and goes, oh my gosh, you're not serious. <laughs> what do you mean? 
the last four digits of our license plate are P000. <laughs> totally oblivious to, to me. They pull it out, they showed it to me. They did slide it back in pretty quick when I thought about it. But the substance of our license plate was offensive to my wife. Right? License plates are a funny thing, right? Like, we pay for vanity plates. It's called vanity plates. You can, like, spell out whatever you want. It's kind of fun to try and figure out, like, you see a black and yellow license plate now. You know they paid extra for it. What, what do they put on there? We try and decode it. But it says so much about the person driving that car, right? Like, if you, if you see a bunch of money signs and a heart, or, like, money, and then an equal sign in life, you have a pretty good idea about where their eyes are in the rest of their life, right? So maybe they have a license plate like that, or politics is power, or whatever it might be. And then imagine if they had a license plate frame. You know when we have like frames that go around and put our cell phones on. It's always funny to me when people leave the license plate frame on from the dealership. I do not get why people do that. It seems like free advertising is weird, but we get custom ones. So imagine if someone put money equals life or heart, 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 and then how to like, we all need Jesus, license plate frame. Which one would you be more likely to believe? The one that cost them like $3 at some like Christian bookstore? Or the one that they pay $65 for every single year to maintain and put front and center right there. You see, that's reflective of how complicated Christians can be. And although we might have Jesus license plate frames on our heart, what is actually inside of our heart can be far different and gripped by these things like money. Like Jesus said, you can't serve them both. Woe to us when Jesus is on the frame and other stuff is in the front. So when I say these last few years have started to reveal where I had been the whole time, it wasn't Jesus uniting the church because we're so divided today. It might have been political familiar or political power or beliefs, right? Politics has exploded in the church. And I've heard so many people say, I could never be a part of a church for someone who voted for Trump. It's real fast. Other people say, I could never be a part of a church for, with someone who votes Democrat. That's stating very plainly that the substance of your license plate is political agreement and a vision for a ruler of Babylon where we are in America, empire and Babylon, not God's country. We need to agree with a Babylonian ruler, lest I can't worship the Savior. Because life can only be found in a human being when your maker, creator, and lover God is at the forefront of your vision. Everything else falls into focus. That's why as a church, our first stated value out there on the banner, on our website is Live Jesus Center. If you center anything else in your life, in your heart, and you build around, it will crumble and fall apart. But things come into order when they are centered on the only one who can hold the ground. Right? Where your eyes are revealed to them doesn't stop there. 
Where you look, reshapes. Where you look, reshapes. The lamp that is the eye reveals us, it does say something, but it also projects into us. This is the primary meaning of what Jesus is talking about here when he says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. That word for healthy in the original language is actually kind of a surprising word that we might not associate with the word healthy. Simply the word single. If your eye is singular, if your eye is focused, implying not divided. Jesus, that's a healthy eye. Looking at one thing, holding one thing with ultimacy. He goes on to say, if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. That word bad in the original language is evil. It's a surprising dichotomy, right? And there's nuance in there. But singular or evil? Focused on God, looking at him, or divided, maybe trying to like no, I don't think anyone in this room can slide their eyes and look in different directions. But trying to have an eye over here and also an eye over here. That's the fundamental religious impulse of every human being in all of history after the fall. I want to do just enough to be near to God, yet duplicitous in my motivation to control my life, to not actually entrust my whole life singularly to to say, I'm all in with you, God. It's who you are. You're worthy of it. And the reason Jesus takes this so seriously is not just because it says something about you, it's because it shapes you. The implication that Jesus has here in a somewhat confusing verse is that if your eye is healthy, in singular, light will pour into you. If your eye is divided or evil or bad, not doing what he gave it to you for, darkness pours into you. What you look to not only says something about the Simply going like this has the power to change everything in your life. Because to go from trying to live for two different masters, Jesus and, and accolades, Jesus and getting into my preferred medical school, Jesus and my job, Jesus and a spouse, Jesus and kids that are healthy and following him, no matter the cost, will end up pouring darkness into you. And that's a hard thing for us to grasp. But you cannot miss the glory of God with anything else. I want to be careful here, but I also want to push us in a direction that we reject in our day that's still biblical truth. 
but I don't want to go to the place where we simply say, abstaining from evil in the world makes you a good Christian. Not looking at certain TV shows. Right? I had family growing up lived in the South. We let their kids watch anything Disney. Maybe because they had suspicions about Disney's motives. Like, I'm more tempted based on the, like, fantasy that Disney tells us that, like, everything works out in the end and all of that. Like, let's not watch our kids watch it for that stuff. That's just not the way that life works. But not just because... I just have to <laughs> But not because there's some sort of ulterior motive. All right? I want, I want to avoid thinking that we can be growing in Jesus primarily by aversion from looking at things that could be qualified as You cannot exceed the righteousness of Jesus Your behavior does not merit more love than God. And yet, we have swung so far in the direction of rejecting that, that now we think, I can look at anything I want. And it can't affect me. Just because something does not affect your standing before God does not mean it does not affect your discipleship and intimacy with God. Maturing as a Christian has everything to do with knowing God. And being able to obey Jesus' teachings, not because you want brownie points to get into heaven, but because you believe you have access to him here and now, and if you go on sinning, you're cutting yourself off from the free gift of life in him. So we cannot have a transformed inner soul by the Holy Spirit, making us alive to God, and just freely give ourselves over to pornography. That's deeply rooted in my soul. I did not say that as someone who cast it off I was thick into the shame and addiction of pornography when I was in college. Stuff that I am just so ashamed of having participated Probably the most despairing component of that was what it actually did to me. If I'm really honest, being around women in the flesh was one of the hardest things being a pornographer. What I was doing in privacy affected my reality. I felt that. It was toxic. And one of the most renewing experiences of knowing Jesus is seeing him actually begin to purify who I am on the inside, flowing out into relationships with women. Obviously, the world doesn't want us Acknowledging that what we do with our bodies changes us on the inside. But that is discipleship. And I want to invite you with that simple issue of pornography, sexual sin, whatever it might be. You just need to be known in the midst of that. Right? But the same is true in so many ways. What we do with our money conditions us to be money in a certain way. So if you've been saving and you're stingy and you're not generous and you don't realize that um, you won't learn to realize the truth of what Jesus says. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You relate to money in a way that 
is surrounded and clouded by darkness. And Jesus offers us light. So, simply put, our need, first and foremost, is to not settle for a kind of religious experience that says I can be around God without facing Him. The first prime question is, are we facing God from our hearts? And as we're learning what that looks like, we need to repeatedly be asking the question. When we come into the gathering, when we wake up in the morning, God, I want to face you. Because a reset button happened when I went to school. Or a reset button happened when I went out, and now I'm coming back in and I'm remembering who I am as a believer in the church. I want to face you. And all of us should feel some sense of what our eyes reveal about us and saying, Lord, I need to repent. You know that repent means to change and turn, to rethink. What more beautiful picture of simply turning your eyes from looking at what you think will save you or satisfy you and casting to Jesus. And as we have a single eye, a healthy eye, looking to Jesus and saying, I'm actually going to try and trust you with everything. We're going to be a community that just nudges each other and says, hey, God's been faithful to us for the last four years. He's going to keep being faithful. Keep going. He's trustworthy. It might feel a little scary as we do so, as we walk in out into the light and say, to be honest, here's a way that I haven't been looking to him. All right, well, let's pray. And we can look to him together from now on. You never need to go back to that. New life is found in Jesus. We have the power of the Spirit to make duplicitous eyes look back with singular focus and face God. And the beautiful assurance that we have is that God, his eyes, are always looking at us, even while we are turned away. When Jesus came and walked the earth in the flesh, one of the most remarkable things about his life is how often the Gospels say he saw them and he had compassion. He saw her and he had compassion. And then he brings healing from the kingdom into people's lives. What we need to imagine being human before God in a God-drenched world with Jesus smartly teaching us how to engage him, and we needing to practice um, our faith, is that God is pursuing everyone around us. He's looking at them. The cross has made a way for him to look at all of us. And all we need to do is look back to him and see him there. That's what it means to become a Christian, is to see that we need not do anything but turn and look to him and see that he's been facing us in hot pursuit. Loving pursuit the whole time. At the cross, Jesus paid for all of our darkness, no matter how much may have shaped us. And in the resurrection, light has poured forth into the world. If we would simply take off the blinders and 